So the name of the talk tonight is called The Shock of the Now. <laughs> um, and it came out of... Uh, yeah. uh, the, the name Shock of the Now came out of a retreat that I was on this week. And uh, it wasn't a meditation retreat. It had meditation and reflection, investigation, uh, inquiry, contemplation, and uh, a very beautiful retreat. And actually some friends were on retreat. Somebody who's here, Jennifer, was on retreat. And also Mark Coleman was on the retreat, who teaches here. And um, uh, Marlena DeCarian was on retreat also, who teaches here at times. And, uh, and it was a very interesting retreat. And, uh, and in one of the interactive practices we were doing, somebody was talking about the shock of the now, about what it is to actually get in the moment. And he kept talking about the shock of actually really being here and not being in our stories or our ideas or our beliefs or our imagination or the past or the future, but actually being in the present moment fully. And he kept saying, yeah, it's like I get shocked into the now. And uh, it was, I appreciated that. I appreciated what he was saying and, and pointing at. And, uh, uh, the retreat was called The Truth of Reality, which that's a good title also for a retreat, The Truth of Reality, whatever that means. Um, and it talked about a lot of different things. And one of the things it talked about is what is true or what is reality if we relax our ideas, our beliefs, our proliferation about things, but we're just with the actual experience itself. And it's a very simple, powerful pointer at just being here. Like even right now, just feel your body. Almost everything else is an idea, right? Everything else, you know, I like this, I don't like this, I'm having a good time, I don't, that's okay, you can have good time, bad time. But if you stay with the simplicity of just your body and your breathing, it's so simple, it's difficult, right? But it's part of what we're encouraging to come into the now or to this moment or to what this teacher was calling, you know, reality, the truth of reality. <clears throat> and, um, and part of what he talked about, and this is uh, somebody I've practiced with for 30 years now, Hamid Ali, who's quite, he's, he's good. Hamid's the real thing, and he's a good guy. I like him very much. I actually have just a, a ray, not just me, but I was the contact because I've been a student of his for a long time. He'll be He's going to be in uh, next month, I believe it is, he'll come to the Spirit Rock and lead a, a short retreat for the Spirit Rock teachers and the Spirit Rock teachers in training, which he's done. He did about 10, he did it twice before, about 15 years ago and about 10 years ago. And now again, um, for whatever reason, Spirit Rock asked me to 
contact him, and I did, and he was happy to come. And because he's also, Jack Cornfield has worked with Hamid as a student of Hamid's for, for 40 years or something, a long time. And uh, so, um, so part of what we were looking at was stories and what it is about stories that are so enticing, fascinating for us as human beings. I mean, so much, all of history is a story, right? And I'm not saying it's right or wrong or good or bad or true or false, but it's a story. It's not here in its living, I mean, there's a living reality that's right here and that's what we're trying to be aware of when we're sitting. We're trying to see what does it mean to get here and wake up to what's here, to what's sitting in your seat, what's alive in your seat. And of course, humans use stories and have used stories um, uh, to make sense of the world, of our inner world and our outer world. Like we tell ourselves stories about what's happening inside and what's happening outside. And that's, those are all really good, really important to and, and fascinating and beautiful, the different stories that human beings make up and believe and that help us. Um, so we don't want to, I'm not, I'm not trying to denigrate stories at all. I just want to be clear. But we're doing, we're trying to do something when we meditate, which is get closer to the aliveness that's right here, not just what we tell ourselves about that aliveness. And, it, and you don't have to stop telling yourself, but be aware of what's here that you're telling yourself a story about or analyzing or evaluating or commenting on or the word that's used in Buddhism a lot is papancha is a great word. Anybody not know what papancha is? Yeah, good, raise your hand so I'll explain papancha. Papancha is a Pali word and it's used in the meditative jargon when, when there's a proliferation of thought right, about anything. You hear a sound and it's like, oh, that sounds just like the, the bird that I heard once when I was walking in the mountains and, you know, in, you know, wherever it is, the, the Rocky Mountains, and there was that bird, and I remember that bird because the bird swooped down. I got to really see it, oh, it was a beautiful bird, and I so wanted to take a picture, but I didn't have a camera, and it was before they had cell phones, so of course I didn't have a camera, and, and really I'm so glad they made cell phones, because now I take pictures all the time, and they're really good, and they really, even right now, I can be on my cell phone and take pictures while I'm sitting here in the, in the room. And you know, and so you, so that's proliferation. It starts with one thing, and then it just goes, right? And it's very normal. And it's especially if you sit, <laughs> right? Is anybody did anybody have no thoughts here while we were sitting, right? Because or, or no stories about what's happening and what or what or what happened yesterday or next week or last year or. 20 years ago, I mean, that just happens. And we can be aware of it. 
we don't have to believe the story and we can start to let go of the story and come into the present moment. Because as I've said many times and I like to say, this is the whole show is right here. This, this, is your, uh, this is the only moment that we're alive is right now. And it's right now. And I know we think we're going to be alive later, and God willing, you know, all that stuff, we will be. But, you know, and of course we remember we were alive whenever, an hour ago, or a day ago, or 10 years ago, or 20. But actually, this is the only moment we're actually alive is right now. And so there's some power in that aliveness that the Buddha pointed at. And he said, pay attention to what's here and now, to the Dharma, the truth of what's here and now, not just our idea about what's here and now, not just our comments about what's here and now, not just our analysis or memory or imagination about what's here and now, not just our papancha, but the aliveness that's breathing itself, the aliveness that's thinking itself, the aliveness that's feeling itself. Hmm. Uh, there were some interesting questions at the retreat at times, and one was about uh, some version of, well, what's knowing what's what's happening, like what knows the breathing, right? And I'm, I'm extrapolating from what I heard on the retreat, but what knows the breathing? And what's beautiful is it actually gets so simple in Buddhism at a certain point, it's the breathing that knows the breathing. <laughs> I, I probably shouldn't go there yet, but, <laughs> pardon? Well, I mean, it's just, it's just like the body's knowing the body when we feel the body. The breath is knowing the breath. And meaning, there's no knowing without the direct experience. And that direct experience, at a certain point, knows itself. We assume we know it. The we in Buddhism, we don't, I don't emphasize this too much, but we might as well once in a while. The we that knows it, that's an add-on, right? That's, that's a story. Oh, I'm knowing it. So again, in Buddhism, there's a lot of teachings about self and not-self. And not-self points to the fact that the idea of self is a construct. And it's a good construct. You don't have to get rid of yourself or deny yourself or forget about yourself, but it's not the only truth that's here. There's also something that's not self that's right here. And that may be have what, what if we talk um, oh, um, in a differential way, so one's more surface, like self, is more the surface of reality. Not self might be the depth of reality, right? You know, the Buddha realized the truth of who and what he was, and it wasn't, you know, Gotama, you know, who was the prince, right? 
There was something else. Buddha wasn't actually his name. What Buddha means is awakened one, right? He was just describing the condition that arose. He didn't say, that's me. He didn't say, I'm the Buddha. He, he would say the one who's here. He would say it in this, in this slightly more um, disidentified way, is how he would say it. So I'll say a little more about the truth. About so, so there's stories we have. We create stories. We create stories about who we are. You ever notice that everybody's got a story about how good they are or bad they are, how right they are or wrong they are, how brilliant they are or not brilliant they are, or how creative they are or uncreative. There's all these stories about who we are. And they have some relative truth, right? We like, you know, I could say, here, here's, Eugene is short, right? Like, that's true, right? And is Eugene the body? That's a different question, right? It's a question we don't usually ask ourselves. Are we just our body? Or is there something else here that is more essential or more basic or more fundamental about who and what we are that is not just the body? That we all have bodies, right? They're all here. I, I see a bunch of bodies. But is that who you are? Right? That's a different question. Who, are, who, who or what are you in essence, not just physically? <clears throat> and so there was a lot of what's called the sharp sword of discrimination on this retreat where we were kept being questioned about what we believe and what stories we tell ourselves about what we believe. And, uh, and Hamid had a beautiful word, uh, that a phrase he used. He said, stories are like phantoms. Stories are like phantoms. They're mental constructs that throw shadows on the immediacy of experience. Stories are like shadows that throw constructs. They, show, they, they begin to obscure the immediacy of our actual lived experience, which is maybe indescribable, right? It may be indescribable, our actual experience like the actuality of what's here. We can use words to describe it, and that's fine, but that's almost never the thing itself. The thing itself is not a word. And what happens is that ordinary experience, when we start to become more immediate, more closer, more experiential with here, it starts to open up reality. It starts to open up the Dharma. It opens up the truth. And, the, and one of the reasons I believe that we like meditation and we like being present and being awake 
is it starts to bring us into a direct and instant involvement with what's here now, whatever is here now. Like we want to be here. This, this is our life in this moment, right now. This is your life. And, and each moment, that actually is your life. When you go out of here and you're driving or walking or on the bus, that's your life right there. Or when you get home and you're alone or you're with family or friends, right there, we all want to be there wherever we are because that's our life. And it's alive, it's real, it's not, it's not uh, being made up. I mean, whatever ideas, stories we have, whatever good and bad, we all have good and bad, but the aliveness is wherever we are in the moment. And so the quality of bringing ourselves into direct instant involvement with something gives rise to a certain sense of poignancy and excitement. That it can be poignant, it can be even difficult, but something starts to wake up when we're actually here fully, when we're here. And we're not here just in our ideas about being here, but in the lived experience of breathing and, and, and sensing and feeling, and even with thinking and everything else, because that's all part of the lived moment, right? When we don't tell ourselves stories about it, or we don't add extra, or we're very immediate with experience. And so uh, the word that Hamid was using was immediacy, like that was the theme of the retreat, was immediacy. And of course, that's, I, I loved it. And I also teach a retreat in his tradition. And I mean, I just tell people, oh yeah, come to our meditation retreat. It's all about immediacy, because that's what meditation is about. It's about how immediately, how can we be here in the, in the immediacy of just this moment fully? And then what happens as we just give ourselves to that? And so I was looking up, um, he said a bunch of beautiful things. He says, presence is what arises in immediacy, that consciousness is aware of its existence in the immediacy, right? Pure experience of being is clouded by our stories about being, about waking up, about Buddha nature, whatever our stories are, they're not it. It's alive, it's the Dharma, it's It may be more accurate to make a sound rather than a word even about the aliveness. That's a, that's a very Eugene way to talk about things. Um, so I looked up the word immediate because I like words. And, uh, and it's from the Latin, uh, immediatus, I'm not a Latin speaker, so excuse my mispronunciations, but, uh, and it's from the word in, right, I-N, uh, and then uh, uh, mediates, in plus mediates, and so in means not, right, the first part of immediate means not, and then the second part means 
intervening. Right? So what it means to be a median is to not intervene with reality. Does that make sense? We're just here with what's here. We're not intervening. We're not adding anything on. We're not putting anything between ourselves and reality. We're not obscuring it with our ideas or our beliefs or our memories. We're just being with the actuality of a moment, of a feeling, thought, sound, taste, touch. It's why sound meditation is so powerful. And, and if you've never done it, just, just sit one time and just be aware of sound. And of course, you'll be aware of sound and the absence of sound. And it's just happening on its own. And you can get, the samadhi can be very, very powerful when we just start being aware of sound. And it's the same samadhi that happens when you love a good piece of music. Well, and I don't care what kind of music it is, hip hop, rock and roll, classical, ethnic music from any tradition, you know, and whatever it is, you become one with the music itself. And that's what samadhi is, is, is not intervening between yourself and the music. And in, in my language, in my mind, in my experience, it's actually very sensual. You become one with it. And that's part of what, really what we're doing with mindfulness of the body is that's a very powerful um, domain for samadhi to arise, is to be one with just this living experience of the body at breathing. Mm. Hamid had an interesting quote. He said, if there's 100% immediacy, then you're awakened. So that's a good carrot, right? I mean, 100% immediacy, and you'll wake up. Let, let's see, maybe he's wrong, but let's prove him wrong by being 100% immediate and see, right? <clears throat> And then, as I was listening to him this week, of course, I was relating to what I know from Buddhism. So I brought a quote from Wang Po. This is from the Zen tradition. And Wang Po said, to be absolutely without concepts is called the wisdom of dispassion. To be absolutely without concepts is called the wisdom of dispassion. Every day, whether walking, standing, sitting, or lying down, and in all your speech, remain non-attached from everything which in the, within the sphere of phenomena. Because that's all immediacy means, is we're not attached to anything extra. We're just here with the simplicity of being, of being alive, of, of aliveness itself. And, and so, the wisdom of dispassion, meaning to be non-attached, because that's what this whole thing about being in the immediacy, if you're attached to some memory or idea or evaluation or belief, or, you lose the immediacy, you lose your contact 
with what's actually alive here and now. And he goes on to say, Wang Po, he said, this is not something you can accomplish without effort. But when you reach the point of clinging to nothing whatsoever, you will be acting as the Buddha's act. It's not something you can accomplish without effort, but when you reach the point of clinging to nothing, of course the word nothing is no thing, to clinging to no thing whatsoever, you will be acting as the Buddha's act. This will be acting in with the accordance with the saying, develop a mind, heart, which arrests or abides on no thing whatsoever. And really, that also was the flavor of this retreat I was on about immediacy, was not abiding anywhere, right? The mind and heart being not abiding anywhere because everything's just doing itself. Everything is just doing itself. Sensations, breath, feeling, emotions, it's all just doing itself. And we're so unused to being with that, it's actually difficult. We're so used to adding on the I'm doing it or here's why it's happening. And those all have their relative truth. There is, you know, like I just picked up the, the stamp, right? I did that, right? And, but the attachment to the I is extra, right? It's true, I, you know, I did whatever I did, but even the idea I is a little bit extra. Reality's just doing its own thing all the time. Uh, let's see. Well, the one other piece to say is that it's interesting how the stories become part of the phantoms that cloud the path and cloud awakening. Um, one of the things that I teach in, in the tradition with Hamid is I'm on a committee that uh, is called Diversity and Inclusivity Committee. And so we're working with how to bring more diversity into this tradition, into the diamond approach, but also to, uh, to really see how we get, how our consciousness gets veiled by the shadows of collective unconsciousness, bias, prejudice, racism, all the isms, whether it's sexism or genderism or racism or, or, the, or the prejudice on, about economic status or class or whatever it might be, how we grow up with all that atmosphere and it shadows, it be, they become phantoms through which we see reality if we don't wake up to it, if we don't start to pay attention to it. And I think that letting go of all the phantoms, of all the stories, all the beliefs, all the ideas we have about who one another is, starts to bring freedom when we can let go of those phantoms.
And then the last piece that I'll just say, because um, really what I'm pointing at, what this retreat I was on was pointed at, was a certain kind of simplicity. The simplicity of being, the simplicity of just this, just this moment. And, uh, and Hamid said a really thing that I like. He said this kind of thing before. He, he'll often point it at animals to see, you know, what, what do animals, are they thinking? Are they telling themselves stories about what's happening, right? He, and he was using a gecko, you know, and, uh, and, you know, is a gecko thinking about, oh, I'm going to get that little insect and I can't wait to get it on my tongue and, oh, remember that good insect I had three days ago? <laughs> or, or is the gecko just being a gecko? That, that kind of simplicity of being he was pointing at this week. So I thought I would say a few words about it and my understanding in relation to the Dharma of us waking up to who and what we are in essence. What is it to discover our Buddha nature? And what is it that's alive here? And that's why, and if you've been here, I've used the word consciousness a lot. What is consciousness? What is it that's aware? And what is it that's aware that it's aware? So I hope I'm planting some, at least some seeds of possibility or curiosity. And I'd I love to hear your thoughts, comments, questions, agreements, disagreements, liking, not liking. It really is great when you join, meaning we talk about what I've been saying so the Dharma comes alive in the whole room very fully. So please come join the conversation, even if you're shy. Please come up and you, you only, the hard thing is you have to come use the mic, but, but it's doable. Hi, Charlie. I was just going to ask, um, you said that you don't focus on <coughs> not self. Uh, I, I don't focus on it a lot. I, I was just curious yeah, why you decided that and what kind of what your thoughts are about it. Sure. Uh, what is anatta? Right? An an anatta, yeah, anatta. Stay here, maybe we'll talk about it a little. Yeah, anatta, and uh, it's it, it's pointed at in the Theravada. It's really, when the Theravada points at emptiness, it's pointing at the emptiness of self. In, in, the, in the Mahayana, it got expanded emptiness. It's the emptiness of all things, like everything is empty. But specifically in the Theravada, which insight meditation comes from, it's pointed at it's the emptiness of self. And the, and it mainly, it's about the suffering that comes because we identify so much with what's sometimes called the small sense of self or the ego identity. And the ego, as we know, is created, right? It's created by causes and conditions, right? We get born like Andrew, right? That's your name? Charlie. Charlie, sorry. I'm, you look like a friend of mine. <laughs> 
So Charlie, when you were born, where was Charlie? Well, didn't they give you a name? Right. You weren't Charlie until they gave you a name. So, it's, in other words, identity like that is a construct. What's there that's not the construct becomes part of what we're looking at here. Because Charlie's here, I got it, Eugene's here, but also there's something more than Charlie and Eugene right here. And that's what we want to wake up to. Okay, so, and the reason why I don't talk about it so much is this is a drop-in group, right? And so uh, we have people at all levels. It's usually one of the hardest things for people to understand is the teaching of not-self. Really, it's a, it's a difficult teaching. People take it personally when you say there's no self or there's not a self or they or it's hard to conceptually understand it because it's not a concept. I was here a couple of weeks ago and they kind of toyed with uh, eyes open meditation. Uh-huh. And uh, I forget who it was, but they said, the, you know, what do I do when my eyes are open? How do I really conceive of this? How can I be mindful of my eyes open? And it seemed to make sense for that person. It has for me that you ask yourself, you know, who is looking? Right. Who is doing right. seeing? That's actually, I find that that's a, I, don't know, I can understand how it can be diff- a difficult concept, but I find it to be very useful. Great. That's well, I that's think. good for you to know. So, I, if I were you, and this is, I say this for everyone, not everyone should do what Charlie's doing, but Charlie's found something that's open and available to him. If you find something in the Dharma that's open and available, pursue it. Right? Like, you know, go to Buddha, Google, and, and really, because other things will start coming through that, because that, that portal is open for you. And you want to trust that when that happens. And for, it's different for different people. Some people it's like the heart or compassion, and that's what's open. Or for some people it's like skillful means, that's what's open. And you, you really want to pursue whatever Dharma doorway is open for you, whether it's concentration or, um, or investigation or whatever it might be. And, and that one you have access to, in my opinion. So go for it. Thanks. Great. Thank you. Yeah, of no self, uh, who we are is a mind-body process. It, who we are is a mind-body process? I think that's what Joseph Goldstein said. Jo- Joseph Goldstein said it? He doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, that's one way to speak about it. It's, is it who we are, or is it what's here? That, that, right, but I'm, I'm, I, would be, I, would be, uh, I would be having an interesting conversation with Joseph about just that question. And I love Joseph, Joseph he's great. But, but it's, it's, so I wouldn't say, oh, who we are is a mind-body process. I would say, what's here is a mind-body process. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's mind, body, heart. I would add in heart. Joseph doesn't add in heart. I like to. But really, because that's what's here. But is that who, who we are? Let's keep seeing 
who we are. Maybe, maybe that's what we are. Maybe we're bigger than that. Or maybe we're less than that. Or maybe we're not even anything. Maybe the I is extra. Okay, good. Please, Faye, come on. This is just more of an observation about myself that it's um, not an effort to stay with that immediacy of the moment. Right. It's like, and it's like my norm and like laziness, mental laziness or whatever, just go back well, to well, that. Well, watch out for any self-criticism like that. That's not a good way to talk about it. Or habitual. Yeah, yeah, it's totally habitual. Of just going off rather than right. staying right in that immediate right. experience. That's why it's called practice. Because <laughs> we're all practicing. We're all learning how to be here. And it's not, it doesn't happen just like that. I mean, actually, it does happen just like that. But to, to just like that to happen every moment that takes practice. Because there can even be like this sense of clinging to, like, oh, okay, I'm right here, yeah. experiencing now with the immediate, yeah. and I want to hang on to that. Yeah, well, do that, cling to that. <laughs> if you're going to cling to anything, cling to that. And then at some point, even clinging to that becomes dukkha. Yeah. And then you, you'll let go of it. But, but if you really cling to it, because what will happen is, if, like, to develop a certain kind of samadhi in Buddhism, like to stay with the breath, takes a lot of effort. You, you want to cling to the breath and see, but at a certain point, everything goes, and you're not clinging anymore. You're just one with the breath. And it's like, oh, this is good. And that's a different, but it takes some right effort. And so the Buddha talked about right effort. It's not just you don't do anything. You make your effort. But it's not clinging to greed, hatred, and delusion. And that's what we want to not cling to. Okay? Yeah, great. Good, it's an important distinction. Hi. Hi. What stories do for us? Uh -huh. What do they do for you? I mean, I think I use stories to help create things in my life. Uh -huh. um, uh -huh. Stories of like what it would be like, or how this is meaningful, or how this means something. to this, to this, to this, like it, you know, and somehow, or a story can be a way to try to feel some sort of control over what's happening. Uh -huh. um, yeah. Okay, that all makes sense. Remember, we're not saying stories are bad. We're talking no. about them in relation, especially to the meditative experience. But they're, and, and, but they are not real. 
And I had, I feel like I have had the experience where I've used stories almost in a way that's pretty wild, uh-huh. um, particularly to deal with grief. Uh-huh. Um, and then I've seen that like flip on me and almost become like an OCD kind of thing where now, oh, I'm afraid to go in that room because if I go in that room, then this thing happens. And, right. And um, yeah, you're, yeah. you're seeing how powerful stories are. They are, that they can really impact, especially related to difficulty, grief, hurt, trauma, right? Because they help us stabilize. And we need the stabilization, but then it becomes a habit. Is one way I'm talking about, you know. But you know how people create a lot of like meaning or purpose with a story right. to help motivate you. Uh-huh. It, it's tricky, you know? Like, I, like, whatever, long story short, I, I, I had to use stories, I had to let go of stories to get through a really intense physical experience. Uh-huh. If I if I would have held on to stories, I wouldn't have made it. Right. And, um, but I used the stories to get there. Right, and th- that's called skillful means. Right. Right? Because, I mean, what am I doing up here every week except telling stories? Right? And the stories are really helpful. Otherwise, all of us, I mean, the story of the Buddha is a great story. And it's not the only great story. There's other great stories in all of humanity. I mean, all the, all the religions that have some reality to them, right? Look around the room, Jennifer was just pointing, right? These are all have stories that, that get handed down to us. This is our human lineage, right? Whether it's Christian or, or Islamic or, or, or Taoist or Buddhist or uh, a Hindu or whatever it is. And, and it's beautiful, but what the stories are saying they're pointing at something. That's what we're talking about here. That is very helpful. But we don't hold on to the story. Really, at some point, even the Buddha story, the Buddha, the Buddha didn't hold on to stories. Well, they romanticize sometimes, and I feel like that can be motivating, uh, uh-huh. but it can also just lead to so much loneliness because of what's supposed to be happening. Right, right. You're you're talking about the tenor of the story, especially how we're hearing it, what's supposed to be happening, or the, if I practice, then I'm supposed to look like one of these statues, right? But so far, I haven't really met anybody who really looks like that. So... Sure. I had this really intense experience of growing two babies in my body uh-huh. at the same time. Uh-huh. And I do not feel like I did that. <laughs> I was there for the whole Yeah, ride. no, beautiful. That's beautiful. I do not, and I do know, like, when you said the breath breathes the breath, like, the body does, I, I was just like, I still can't believe that happened. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. <laughs> It's beautiful. I said to somebody, 
at this retreat who I know and have known for you know, also a Buddhist teacher, Sharda. Uh, uh, I said, I was sitting with her, I said, I love being here with you because I don't know you at all. Even though, of course, I've known her 30 years. And, and you're saying something really true. You didn't do it. It did itself. Like not personal. Like how not personal your body is. Right. And, it's, and what? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Thank you. <laughs> That's so funny because here's what I have after I get read the quote on this paper. It says, "Woohoo!" <laughs> So I guess we're really, that's a good place for us to stop right now. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. So let's sit for a minute before we end tonight. And just take a moment to reflect as you feel your body and breath. or your feelings, or your thoughts, or the sounds. And taking a moment for us to all appreciate our good fortune that we can be here and we can come together and we can talk about what it is to be alive, to awaken, and to discover who and what we are. And our wishes for that good fortune to go out in every direction and touch all beings in all worlds. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings be free from any kind of misunderstanding, confusion, any kind of phantom that obscures their understanding of their precious nature, of their Buddha nature, of the nature of awakening. May all beings discover their true Buddha nature, the wisdom of, the nature of wisdom and compassion. May all beings be free. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.